This is Hans Reamer, Montgomery County Council Member, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing okay, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> today on the podcast, we are going to talk about the Kerwin Commission's latest meeting. Michael, we did not have to come in last week and do an emergency podcast as we suspected, but we did get some new information from last week's meeting. And then we'll get into some tricky tax issues. So, Michael, let's jump right in to the Kerwin Commission Funding Formula Workgroups meeting last week. Really, it was all about moving forward with formula assumptions for modeling purposes. What, what does that mean? Right. Well, we're starting to get there. I mean, if there's, if there's one takeaway, it's that the bricks are starting to get piled up and they're about to be sort of cemented together into the wall that they're trying to build. So the mortar is on, right. the, on the way. Yeah, right? this is sort of a tortured analogy, but um, you and I have been frustrated and on the podcast that probably shows up that we've been talking for literally months and months and months about this group has not yet gotten to a lot of the things that certainly the counties are very interested in, but I think a lot of stakeholders have been waiting for right. sort of the nuts and bolts and the math behind how is this going to look. Exactly. So we did make some progress, at least on the formulas, at least giving the staff some direction on how to model what this is going to look like, what the end product is going to look like. Right. And uh, I guess needless to say that last time we were on the air, we were telling you to circle October 8th on your calendars. No, 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 no. So now I hope you did that in pencil because October 8th is going to be the penultimate rather than the ultimate meeting of the group. Right. Um, on the 8th, they're going to meet and they're going to have a work session where it sounds like they're going to get down to brass tacks. That's tax, T-A-C-K-S, not the other tax. We're not doing that. We don't do that. <laughs> yeah, Gerwin's not doing that. Um, but they, they are going to get down to it, probably start showing policy options in a way that'll be I think easier for stakeholders and readers and viewers and the citizens following along that whatever percent actually understands what this is about. Right, right. Um, I think it'll be easier for everybody to put this in context. If, if you're there because you're, you're an employee of one school system or you're a stakeholder in one jurisdiction, it's just an awful lot easier to look at a sheet of paper. Oh, Allegheny County. Let me read the numbers across. This is what it means now. This is what it means by the end. Okay, I'm starting to understand what you're saying. Yeah, it puts everything into perspective. And they have extended their work until October 15th. So erase October 8th on your calendar and circle <laughs> October 15th. You should probably do it in pencil because who knows? But that is now October 15th. No, no, no. Let's, let's nail it down. Like, like okay. we're, we're, we're convinced, right? I'm convinced this is it. It has to be getting It has close, to be right? It, right? I mean, this time the, the football is going to stay there. We're going to kick it. It's going to be awesome. Okay. So October 15th will be the final <laughs> decision it. meeting. You heard it from Michael circle Sanderson. Circle it in ink. No changes. Even green ink. Green like ink. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Okay, so let's jump in, Michael, to what they actually did. And really, we, we can focus on the foundation amount. We can focus on targeted population funding and how that's all going to break down. But those are the two main components of what they discussed at this last meeting. And Michael, we did see the current foundation amount, which is what the state believes is, is really your foundation for what every student needs to succeed in school. Right now, $7,244. And the new foundation amount in current dollars will be $9,020. If you adjust that for, you know, cost of living over time and inflation in fiscal 2030, that amount jumps to $11,164. So we have the foundation amounts now, Michael. Yeah. So and let's, let's, let's break yeah. that down. I think, it's, I think it's worth reminding everybody and sort of recapping what this number represents. The way Maryland funds schools and this is simplified at every level, but mm -hmm. the way Maryland funds schools is we start with this number. We say, we say we know that a successful school requires a certain amount of funding per student. We've done this various analysis and we've done a more recent refresh of that and so forth, and we've incorporated some professional judgment and so forth. So now you come up with this foundation amount that says dollars per student, this is what it takes. We'll start there. Right. And then we have a series of add-on programs because there are classes of students that we keep saying they're harder to teach and harder to reach. Mm -hmm. So we know it takes some extra funding when your student population includes those categories. Right. We'll get into that in a minute. So we'll add on according to those populations, but everybody starts with a foundation and everything builds from the foundation. So this number sounds esoteric, this like 7244, what does that even mean? Right, right. But seven, $7,244 per student right now is the starting point in every school's imagined funding requirement to be successful. Exactly. And of course, you do have all those extra components added on to that, but that's the starting point. So when we talk about this new foundation amount, what, what they're going to recommend here and how they're going to start building the formulas off of this new foundation amount, let's break that down. The two biggest cost drivers here, Michael, both connected to teacher salaries. And, you know, we know that there's going to be an increase in teacher pay to compete with other similar professions. That's been pretty well documented. I mean, yep. We've talked about it a lot, but I think media coverage of the Kerwin effort and the various times that that either Britt Kerwin or others have been, you know, going out to conferences and events like the Mako conference, but to other other events and so forth. An investment in teachers and increasing teacher pay is one of these missions. And you can debate whether that's a great idea. Uh, you know, the Baltimore Sun did a piece within the last couple of weeks saying that's exactly right. They're like, right. hey, if the Baltimore Orioles want to get an ace pitcher, you don't find the cheapest guy you can find. You pay, you know, you get what you pay for. So increasing the pay for a given teacher or for a given teacher slot going up, I think everybody recognizes that that's part of this plan. So no surprise, it's here. Right. And that's been from the beginning. That's been one of the goals of the actual Kerwin Commission, not just this funding work group. Right. So pretty well documented and no surprise that it's here. Right. So when you talk about what that will cost, increasing the salary, that's $617. So out of about $1,800. So for the moment, let's set aside the future inflation stuff, because I think that makes this more right, complicated right, right. than it has to be. But if we're going from about 72 to about 9000 the jump is about 1800 bucks, and more or less a third of it is coming from this idea of pay individual teachers more. Right. And we've seen the specifics of that. Their vision is sort of a 10% increase quickly for all teachers. 
Uh, we've got the beginnings of that underway already with an incentive program that's already been funded right, right. and is underway in this year's budget. But then, you know, they have an idea of every teacher in every jurisdiction ought to be making $60,000. We ought to get rid of the jurisdiction. You know, some places are paying 44 or 48 or 54 or whatever. Get everybody to 60 as a way to communicate the teaching profession is a priority here. Right. But there is another component to this. And we've talked about this before as well, and that is reducing the end classroom time for each teacher. And the idea here, Michael, is to give teachers more time to collaborate with their colleagues, professional development. And if you're going, if it's $1,800 and we just said 617 for salary, this one costs $1,151. That's a, a massive cost when we're just talking about what this means to the new foundation amount. So so thinking in dollars is is reasonable, I think. So the idea of having dollar amounts next to each of these components is illuminating to everybody who's been following this conversation. But up to now, we've mostly having, here's a paragraph that describes this part and then a paragraph that describes that part. Some of these items on the list are $4 and $6 next to the $611.50. Right, they stand out. Right, so, so these are the two big tickets. But I would say in contrast with paying individual teachers more, that one people have been talking about, and I think some people are saying yes, I'm in to do it, and some people are saying no, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure we need to do that. There, that debate has already started. Mm -hmm. This second piece is, I think, almost completely hidden from this public dialogue and discourse. Um, the, I mean, the, the quick label here on the sheet of paper that the the formula funding work group had, they called it cost of collaborative time. And that sounds fine. I mean, you're right. They haven't gotten into it enough to where you could you could expect that it would cost this much money. And I don't think people understand. We talk about paying teachers more. You're right. Everybody thinks that's a good idea. We need to recruit. Yeah. We need to maintain. But yeah. When you get into this number and why it's so much more than the actual salary, I think that is where you're absolutely right. People have no idea that it would be this much. So, so this is where the money really is. So what's it going for? I mean, you laid that foundation already that this is about enabling teachers more time for professional development and mentorship, preparation for their classes and peer exchange and things of that nature. Sure. And independent of what you think about them, what we're talking about here, just as a matter of numbers, is a typical teacher today, back of the envelope, spends 80% of his time in the classroom. And under this vision, the Kerwin plan says the, the role of a teacher is to do a lot more than be in class. And this other stuff is important enough that we want to make sure you've got time for it. So each individual teacher should only be spending 60% of his time in the classroom rather than 80. Mm -hmm. So implicitly, that means, why is this so costly? I mean, are we paying people a whole bunch of money to do professional development? No, but we've got to hire a ton more teachers to backfill. The class right, the teachers time. That there. right. So that's why this is the bigger ticket. It's not obvious if you haven't been paying a close attention. And if we've learned anything from the polls, most people have not been paying close attention. But even if you're the loyalist of the Conduit Street podcast listeners, sure. I think this number would be surprising. This number is almost twice as big as the salary increase for a given teacher 
the cost of hiring more teachers so each one has to spend less time in the classroom, that's a big shift. Yeah, that's that was certainly the, the biggest number and I think the, the most illuminating number when it comes to the foundation amount. And again, one that I think surprised a lot of people. And as you mentioned, we've mostly seen a lot of paragraphs about why this is important and why these recommendations are the way they are. But we're starting to get what you've been asking for, Michael, these yeah. spreadsheets, right? Yeah. Sideways sheets of paper with numbers. And that is why now we can start at least to figure out the direction this is heading and where the, the true costs are. So, I mean, I'm not raising this and and sort of flailing my arms around because I think it's a terrible thing, but I do feel like this is a light flickers on moment for stakeholders mm-hmm. to see how much of the envisioned school investment under the Kerwin plan really is going for this particular thing. Out of that $3.8 billion, I don't know what this translates to in billions, but like this is probably north of a billion dollars of that is hiring more teachers so each one has less of a classroom commitment. And another part of that is, you know, when I'm doing that back of the napkin math of how many teachers do you have to hire, that's making some assumption about class sizes. Right. And I'm not sure that that's safe because if you dig back through the paperwork of the Kerwin Commission and its various recommendations in their reports and their, you know, various iterative work product, they have been talking about class sizes actually going up a smidge. Right. So that was one of the ways to to save costs. And that's, we'll put this on the blog too, but when they looked at high-performing schools in other countries, they found that class sizes are typically 30 to 40 kids. In Maryland, the average is 20.5 students in mm. the classroom. The Kerwin Commission actually recommends ramping that number up from 20.5 to 23. So that's another thing that I think would surprise a lot of people, that everybody thinks you know we're putting more money into education. That means we're going to have smaller class sizes, right? We're going to reduce that ratio of students to right. teacher. But when you think about it as we're going to put more money in, we're going to hire more teachers and we're going to increase class sizes, I think that would take a lot of people off guard. I, I mean, I know my my wife and I were not that lent, not that many years ago thinking about we were looking to move within Anne Arundel County and thinking about school districts. And I know that we were pulling up data. And one of the easiest numbers to measure is the teacher to student ratio. And I think that's an intuitively obvious thing that a lot of people pay attention to as a as sort of a proxy sure. for the depth of commitment to the schools. And I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of asterisks and, and whatnots that are involved in that simple brute force number. But people do think in terms of class size. And I, I, I'm interested when I just went to, you know, back to school night at my elementary school and I was looking around seeing how many seats are in are in these rooms and so forth. So it'll be interesting. I think it's interesting just for politics. It's interesting as people become clearer about the specifics of the plan. At some point, in addition to here are the eight or ten bullets that will sound appetizing and appealing, Mm -hmm. at at some point someone will say, oh, and by the way, class sizes are going to get larger, but that's fine. And that's going to be, you're right, that's going to be a very interesting moment because, again, that goes against what everybody, every parent thinks is the right way to do things when it comes to schools and how their child can best succeed is to have less students in the classroom so the teacher has more time to focus on individuals. but. This is going the other direction. So I think politically, you're right. It's going to be very interesting. Would have made an interesting poll question on its own. And I can tell you, right, if you ask 
Marylanders, and I don't care whether they're registered voters, likely voters, Marylanders, people any, with, people with in any letter state. E in their name or yes, whatever. But yes. if you do a poll and you ask people, you know, as we're thinking about education, what do you want to see happen to class sizes? Get larger, get smaller, or you know, same size or don't care? Who do you think is going to win in there? Hmm. I think I know. That's fine. That'll be part of the communications challenge for the commission and for the legislature and for the various stakeholders who want to see this pass. I think that'll that'll be part of this debate up ahead. Okay, so the next part, Michael, we mentioned there were two main parts when it came to funding and what they worked out for formulas. The next part, we talked about it briefly earlier, is this targeted funding. And as you said, Maryland recognizes that some students, it costs a little bit more to reach them, to educate them. Pre-K for three and four-year-olds, that's going to be part of this targeted funding. It's an extra add-on weight in funding. You're going to have special education students, English as a second language, compensatory education, which is for kids that come from tough economic backgrounds. And then we have a new concentration of poverty add-on funding uh, source. And that's for schools that have high concentrations of poverty. But the, the main takeaway here, Michael, was they talked about, you know, who is going to be responsible for funding this this add-on funding is it going to be the state the locals or some combination of both right so so as a transition between these two things in addition to sort of explaining to the to the formula work group members and getting their sign off on building what the foundation looks like then the things you do after the foundation are you work on these add-on programs right. and each of them needs to be a certain number of dollars per student following the same notion that that to to achieve the outcomes we want for students in special education it's going to take this many dollars per student so that should be an add-on percentage for them same thing for compensatory education same thing for uh, limited english proficiency students and so forth and if, if adopted this new category of schools with high concentrations of poverty. So you'll end up going to three or four extra categories, but they iron out what the numbers look like there. Right. And, and what that sets up then is the conversation about the local side of all this, which has been, in my judgment, I think our judgment, sorely lacking with this, even this formula funding work group's time, but certainly with the Kerwin Commission's time over its now three years plus of meetings. Well, the good news is they've started at least to, to get into this. And uh, Michael, I think we've talked about this before, too. You have that foundation amount and then we have maintenance of effort. So that's that's really to cut that thing, that whole conversation Long talk short, right. maintenance of effort is really the functional rule in Maryland is the state says, keep doing what you're doing per student. If you're well below, if you're below average, we're going to click an escalator on there to bump your number up. Mm -hmm. But basically that's the operating number, the requirement the state puts on the locals. What, what they don't do is they don't say that the locals have to fill in what's left after the state does its wealth-adjusted share of that foundation and those add-on programs. The add-ons. The law still says we've got to do our share of the foundation program, but it doesn't make the same requirement for the add-on programs. So a break in the dam at the back half of this last meeting of the funding work group when they shared a single sideways sheet of paper that has, in my judgment, more useful content on it than the last 50 pages worth of paragraphs. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so we now have a snapshot of where they think they're going. If you're following the pirate map, you now, I think, see where the X 
marks the spot at the end of this treasure hunt. They kind of give you a snapshot here of what counties are doing right now when it comes to maintenance of effort and what things would look like if they required counties to fund their share of those targeted add-on funding formulas, right? And so what we found, Michael, was interesting. I mean, the, the first big the first big item for me is that according to the Department of Legislative Services, in, in fiscal 20, counties collectively added $238 million above that required maintenance of effort. So it shows that counties do take education very seriously. It's our, it's our number one issue. We're putting in $238 million above and beyond what the state says you have to put in. Which is, which is amusing because there, there have always been stakeholders around the table at the Kerwin Commission and even at the funding work group. But at that table, you've got at least one member of that funding work group who continues to use this trope. Oh, maintenance of effort is both a ceiling and a floor. No one ever exceeds it. And, and it's, I think it was really helpful for the members to see, okay, first of all, we're no longer talking about 2017. Well, yeah, the best data we have is right. this year that feels like a political generation. Because ago. we know coming out of the recession, right. it's, it's been growing and growing and growing right. our share above maintenance of effort. Yeah. So we know the counties have had their, their, the pedal to the metal on this and it shows you do the, you do the math for the year we're in right now, not some historical baseline, but in 2020 right now. And what did the counties do? Well above and a quarter billion dollars more than they were required to under maintenance of effort. The counties showed up and funded schools independent of what the state was telling them they had to do. And most of this money gets locked right in to the maintenance of effort base and is required in future years too. And this, you know, maintenance of effort, it's, it's important to point out a lot of counties they also fund, you know, school related items, not necessarily through their school budget. So school right. nurses, for example. Sure. Lots, you, you, lots of lots of counties fund resource. that through the, through the health departments. Right. Uh, you might have resource officers in the schools, but they might be deputy sheriffs. So they might be police officers mm-hmm. and funded through the county budget there. Uh, there's a pretty long list of things like that that are supplied to the schools or on behalf of the schools, but they the county doesn't get any credit for having made that commitment. It's it's weird. I mean, I mean, these things have built over time, and that's a system that works fine in this county, fine in that county. It's only when the state comes in and says, we're going to calculate everything in one size fits all because we got a new idea. That's that's when you expose these rough edges. Right, and of course, it doesn't account for capital expenditures, oh, no, of course. No, 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 we right. don't count that. I mean, we don't count that's that. obviously for the schools, and it's county money going for it, but that's on a separate ledger. It's not in here at all. Okay, Michael. So again, we'll have this on the blog, but when you look at this sideways sheet of paper, we see that counties are are putting in a quarter billion dollars more than the state says we have to do. What else stands out to you here before we wrap up this conversation on Kerwin? Well, to me, I think this is a pretty clear arrow pointing toward the structure that the funding formula group is going to recommend. How do you bring the counties along for their share of this ride? And it's going to be by accompanying maintenance of effort with a new, more meaningful and more robust funding requirement. And it's going to be tied not just to the foundation funding. It's it's kind of quirky mm-hmm. that right now the counties have to fund their share of the core program, but not the add-on programs. Okay, so wipe that out and rethink the whole thing and say the counties should be doing their share of all those programs, the foundation plus all the add-on programs. Each one of them has an implied county share after the state does its piece. 
So I think where they're headed is counties just do that. Now, that's not going to be the full. I don't think that they're done once they adopt that sentence. Right. Um, and we can see the beginnings of a debate on this sheet of paper. Again, I love the sideways sheet of paper. And the reason is, look at all the stories this tells us. So on on the, the, the one pager that compares fiscal 20 maintenance of effort, how much did counties actually fund versus the local share of all the formula programs. And they break this out in millions of dollars and in percentages. And they show if we were if we were telling the counties to do their share of all the programs, who's there, who's ahead, who's behind, it's all right here. And it's right here as a dollar amount difference as and as a percentage difference. So it already gives you a flavor of if that were the new state attitude toward county school investments, we know where we start. And we see massive differences here, Michael. So it really does raise the question, if this was all they were going to do, you have some jurisdictions that are way ahead already. Is it? Are they just going to say, well, you know what, since you're you know, $300 million ahead of where you should be right now, you can just take off five, six years because you're, you're already well above and beyond what we want you to do. So right. this isn't going to affect you at least until like year seven or eight of the yeah. phase in. So, so I, think, I think the funding work group is going to have a challenge on their hands as to, as to what, what should the state's attitude be about that jurisdiction. So, I mean, I will center in on a non-obvious candidate, but look at Calvert County. Right. And so, you know, a growing medium-sized county, and right now they are almost – funding double what would be the implied local share of all these different formulas. So, so for, instead of putting in a dollar, they're putting in a buck 95. And what does the state now tell a Calvert County to do? Cause that's a County that I think by any measure has said, we're going to, we're going to invest in schools. I mean, that wealth formula is supposed to back out a reasonable County contribution. Right. And for their number, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure they put in substantially more than the County than the state gives them. True. Right. So they're, they're one of those States that's going to be two thirds local money, one third state money or something like that. And they're saying, even still, so. we're even with that, we're doing above and beyond. Right. So as a plan comes together, to what extent do you say, Calvert, we're going to actually crack the whip on you as well as someone adjacent to you geographically or alphabetically who is in a different circumstance, who's like just barely meeting this target or is just below or just above? Um, how do you how do you frame the next phase of school funding and do that with an eye towards what are you doing today? Right. Because I mean, you know, like you just said, they're already putting in double essentially. So it's hard to go to them and say, Hey, by the way, thanks for putting in, you know, almost double of what we've asked you to do, but now we're going to need you to do even more. We're going to crack the whip because we don't think you've been doing enough. I mean, that, that is a tough conversation to have. Of course you have some jurisdictions, uh, you know, they're still above maintenance of effort, but not as when it comes to those those local shares, right? It would hurt them a little bit. But these jurisdictions that really stand out that are way above and beyond, uh, even if you said you need to pay for the local share of the at-risk formulas, they're still well, well above, above and beyond. How do you how do you reconcile? And that's going to be a big part of this. Right. So that's tough. And then 
I mean, it could go without saying, but we should put a finer point on it. You've got jurisdictions that right now are not at this level. Right. And on the list of jurisdictions who aren't there, you've got one noteworthy one where the General Assembly will be counting on a lot of votes. So Baltimore City, at the moment, their contribution in school funding coming from local dollars doesn't hit this target today. Right. And that's before you make changes to all these formulas, we know that the concentration of poverty program is going to have a profound distribution to Baltimore City. Right. But at the moment, we're not yet talking about what share of that comes from the taxpayers in Baltimore City or through the budget of Baltimore City. Um, I don't know what the ask of Baltimore City local funds looks like here. Uh, but that is another of the moving parts in how to go from here. But now that we've got a sheet of paper to look sideways and think regionally and understand, like, this begs all these different questions. It puts all this stuff right before the funding work group. This is the piece of paper that's going to be sitting in front of them for half of the meeting on October 8th. Guarantee it. They will not be sitting looking at one of those reports that's got 75 pages of paragraphs. They're going to be looking at this sheet of sideways numbers. This is what we've been waiting for. So October 8th is the next meeting, but of course we will keep you updated. All right, we'll leave it there for now. When we come back, we're going to take a look at tricky tax issues, and I'm going to tell you to remember the 14th Amendment. That's going to be a recurring theme. All that and more after a word from our friends at the Eye on Annapolis podcast. This is John Frenet with Eye on Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So, if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's get into some tricky tax issues. Oh, we because, love this stuff. Yeah, we do love this stuff. And I promise it's going to be interesting. And over the last week, we've seen three major developments um, on these issues. The first one, Michael, is state and local tax deduction, right? We've been talking about this on and off for a year and a half now. Right. And this, this all goes back to tax reform in 2017 at the federal level. And Michael, remind us here what that did and why states like Maryland and New York and New Jersey are, are upset about it. So to take, again, take a lengthy conversation that we have probably hashed out in enough detail on previous editions of the podcast. Definitely. Have. But as, as the federal government was doing a big tax cut or tax reform package, uh, one of the things that was in that conversation was what the feds call pay-fors. And that is basically some ways they can make adjustment that actually will increase revenue through the tax structure, mostly so they can afford doing rate cuts here or changes there and so forth. So make it balance that, out. That, that, that's fine. And there were a number of members in Congress who said, I won't vote for a package that affects the 10 year deficit by more than X dollars. So I don't want this to be more than a billion and a half dollars or $10 billion or whatever number, that sort of thing. So, 
okay, that's fine. So in the process of looking for pay-fors, the idea was what are some things that we might be able to deny people the ability to write off? And they made lots of other changes, but one of the things that was in the conversation was the ability up till this up till this law changed things, people had the ability to write off state and local taxes on their federal form. The idea being we don't tax income that's not truly available to you. And if you've already paid some of your income in your property tax or in your state income tax, then that's not really something you've got in hand to pay taxes on. So it ought to be reduced from the base that the federal government taxes. Remember, the states created the federal government, not the other way around. So the states are first in the pecking order Properly. What they decided to do was to limit the amount to $10,000. Right, so you can still make a deduction, but it's not the full amount of those taxes. It's capped at $10,000. So that's the issue of the moment. And that's what the update is about is the Fed said you can only write off $10,000. There's a number of specific jurisdictions who felt like, wait, we've got a disproportionately high number of people who are going to be affected by that cap who actually have fair. 15 20, $25,000 on these local taxes. That's not fair. We've been singled out. Let's go to court because everybody goes to court now. Right. So those four states did file a suit and they claim that this and new- we're one of them. Maryland's we're one of them. One of Maryland states, is one. Yeah. And they claim that this new cap violated the U.S. Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. And 14th Michael, Amendment. 14th right. Amendment. Get your pocket constitution out. We know that most Conduit Street listeners carry around a copy of the U.S. Constitution, you know, day and night. Of so, course they do. So, uh, so you've got that handy. But the 14th Amendment, okay, that's fine. Okay. So that suit was thrown out in federal court. I mean, that's the update. I don't think we need to get into to all the minutiae, but basically a federal judge said, you know what? No, I don't buy that argument. And we're not going to change the cap. We're not going to go back and relitigate this. They threw it out. And so, you know, I think Maryland and other states haven't decided how they plan to react if they want to pursue this any further. But that's the big update. So, I mean, our record is pretty good of forecasting how big issues like this are going to go. And back when it first started up, there were two efforts to basically undermine this part of the federal tax reform. One was some states were playing playing around with the idea of let's create some sort of a charity and people can give money to the charity. And then that money ends up going to the state government. They'll pay. They'll make a charitable contribution in lieu of of paying taxes and they'll still be able to deduct it. The IRS, the IRS said, that. no, right. no, you know, not doing it's, that. It, you know, call it a duck. Right? right. And the same thing has happened here. Um, the, the courts have said, you're not like taxpayers in Connecticut versus taxpayers in Alabama are not being fundamentally sifted out and treated unfairly. So it's not a 14th amendment equal protection argument. It's also not a violation of the 10th amendment, which is, reserving powers to the states. Um, That was sort of a subsidiary legal argument here. They threw that out too. So set it aside. The, The change in the limit on state and local income taxes is in place and safe for the time being, maybe unless there's a change in attitude in the U.S. Congress, but getting that group to agree on anything, I'm not I'm not banking on that. No, definitely not. (laughs) Uh, The next big issue that we have an update here, Michael, this is an interesting one. And 
This is all about taxing digital services, and this is commonly known by some as the quote-unquote Netflix tax. Yeah, you got to have a clever name. So the Netflix tax, right? right? Everybody knows what Netflix is, right? Okay, so. So about four years ago, Chicago expanded its 9% amusement tax to include charges paid for the privilege to witness, view, or participate in amusements that are delivered electronically. What that means is your Netflix, your Hulu – uh, you know, all of these streaming services that people use these days, you know, not people aren't going to buy CDs anymore. Right, right. They're, they're getting it on iTunes. Right. Mm-hmm. So Chicago says we're going to we're going to tack a tax onto that because we are trying to respond to this economic shift. And for years, places like Chicago and Baltimore. Right. I mean, and this is a Maryland issue, too, sure. have had. Uh, we have in Maryland, we call an emissions and amusements tax. So if you go, if you buy a movie ticket or you go to a play or you go to a rodeo or other things like that, you go in person to an event, you're already paying a special tax levied on the purchase of a ticket. Right. So the idea is as fewer people go to the movie theater and instead wait and watch that movie at home through a service they're paying for, is there an equity argument that the tax ought to apply to that service as well because it's a new form of amusement? Right. And so almost right after they passed, they added that to the amusement tax. They, they faced a flurry of lawsuits from subscribers to services like Netflix, Hulu, Spotify. Right. And that's what we do. We don't like it. We sue. And, and, and what, what, is the, what was the argument, Michael? So two arguments, but let's start with, I hope you still have the page marked for the 14th Amendment. Uh, the content providers and the streaming services have jointly claimed that this is an equal protection argument. Equal 14th protection Amendment. under the law, they say, extends to creators of digital content. And the basically, they're also saying it's unfair to single out the process of distribution. So saying you know, your tax is going to apply to this type of delivery the mechanism delivery. and maybe not other ones is itself unfair and discriminatory. So And that's unconstitutional. And so therefore, under the 14th Amendment, it's unconstitutional as an equal protection argument. Um, this is a TBA, so we don't know how this is fully going to play out, but Everybody in America is watching the Chicago law as kind of the bellwether for whether the light is green, yellow, or red on jurisdictions seeing this kind of content as a a transaction that you can use as a local revenue source to try and support all the things you're delivering to those families and so forth. Um, there's, there's a separate argument here. This is kind of a preemption argument with the federal government. Uh, the, the Congress has passed and renewed a sort of tax-free internet law mm-hmm. uh, since the 90s, basically saying we want the delivery of internet service to be tax-free. Okay, so if I have a bundled package at home with cable, internet, phone, as we see all the time, right? Right. They tell me it's going to be 120 bucks, but really it's 150 because of all these extra charges. Charges and right? taxes and other things like that. But if you right. just have right. internet, like right. you Which don't I have do. the cable or the phone, yeah. you do. So I'm a cord cutter. Okay. So, right. but I get I get a digital service, which is just internet service, and my monthly bill looks exactly like the rate. I'm paying $54.99 per month. That's exactly what I pay for internet service only, and my bill is one page long because it's that's the rate and that's the bottom line. Not all those other charges that no one knows what they mean tacked onto it. Right. So, so that that's a function of the U.S. Congress for years and years saying internet service. 
should not be a taxable, you know, not be a field that we should tax. And this has been renewed time after time again. It's a popular thing to say no taxes on the Internet. Is that in conflict with the idea of a jurisdiction, a state or a city deciding to levy a tax on content that is distributed principally through internet service providers? So you can't tax the, you can't tax the internet service from a cable company or from some 5G provider down the road the or whatever. Itself. Right. The, the internet service you can't tax. And I, I don't think there's any real challenge there. Mm-hmm. The feds, the, the feds pass a law and that's the law of the land. But does that extend all the way to the content delivery and these services that are delivered through that media? Well, for now, an, an Illinois state appeals court upheld Chicago's tax on these services. So as you said, a lot of states, a lot of jurisdictions are watching because we know more and more the sales of, of these types of services are outpacing the sales of goods. Yeah. But most of them remain exempt from state sales and use tax or amusement tax or whatever it is. So, again, we're trying to respond to these economic shifts. And, you know, the Wayfair case in the Supreme Court last year really opened the door here to say that you can collect sales tax on providers that are outside of your own state. And as a side benefit, I would say for the jurisdictions trying to levy this tax, the Wayfair case wiped out the argument that there's no nexus, that there's no sale happening in Chicago for a person who has happens to have a billing address for her Netflix account and lives in Chicago. It doesn't matter even if she's in, you know, Urbana-Champaign at the University of Illinois for that semester. If her bill's in Chicago, there's a transactional nexus and Chicago can levy that. So Wayfair set that stuff aside, but this is one where we don't have an end point yet. This is an appeals decision in the Illinois state courts, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. There's no You'd way. Th- there's no way this doesn't go. Probably all the way. I would. I, think. I would think the constitutional issues here are big enough, and the litigants are big enough hitters. I mean, the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago are desperate financially, and you know that the Netflixes and Hulus of the world, Silicon Valley, are, they have enough cash that they will try and draw their line in the sand here. This is probably the case that makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court and sorts this stuff all out. I agree. And our final tricky tax issue, Michael, this is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite (laughs) issues. And I I will say that it's a clever argument that some really, really high-powered attorneys have come up with and also extremely specious at the same time. But we're talking here about the dark store theory. And if that sounds ominous, it's because it is, if if you're a local government. Right. So, I mean, this is an issue that has been it has been a corporate strategy of basically big box retailers. So companies like Home Depot and Walmart and Lowe's and, uh, you know, the all these sort of big players who have lots and lots of square face in their warehouse size centers. Right. Uh, they own commercial property. And the way that almost every state assesses commercial property is through some professionally guided process where an assessor looks at either what did it cost in bricks and mortar and human time to construct the building, or you look at what's the income potential of the building at its highest and best use. And that's exactly and, the issue. Here. So you, you back out those calculations and say this property is worth X. 
And everybody also knows like the use of comparables. Like you say, hey, retail in this side of town is going for this many dollars per square feet. So you run the arithmetic and this Home Depot is we think it has an assessment of you know, $1.2 million. And so we're going to assess you and tax you based on that assessment. For years, that's what commercial properties paid their taxes based on. And the problem is, Michael, we've all seen the malls shutting down. We've seen these big box stores, you know, leave town and those buildings remain vacant. So all of a sudden now your comparables on the other side of town are these old, decrepit, abandoned buildings. And you're over here in the big box store on this side of town. And you're saying, wait a minute. You should be assessing my property based on the value of that decrepit building on the other side of town that is unoccupied and falling apart. It's kind of an esoteric theory here, but what what Team Home Depot would like you to do if you're a tax assessor, and especially if you're a tax assessor in the smallest, poorest jurisdiction in Indiana who might have just a part-time lawyer representing your legal interests – They'll bring their, you know, their big, their big money jet. law team. Right. They'll fly their, you know, their their Learjet lands at the tiny regional airport. They bring in nine dudes in pinstripes and they come attack you in court and say, no, no, no. We're challenging our assessment and our assessment should be based on if we as Home Depot went out of business, who would be willing to buy this property? And their argument, this is, it's actually hilarious and clever at the same time. Right. Their argument is we've put so much time into making this a Home Depot. It has to have this spaces and we had to build this stuff out and these extra high ceilings here because the Home Depot needs this sort of stuff for our big lumber area or whatever. And they say, if we left, no one's going to, no one wants this property. So the actual value of the property is not what it cost us to build it. We don't look at the bricks and mortar. Uh, it's not based on what we're making because we've got, I mean, we're doing gangbusters business here. We're making lots of profit, but don't use that either. What we want you to look at instead is if Home Depot walked out the door, who would buy this thing and what would they be willing to pay for it? And that's not a million two. As it turns out, that's like 150 grand. Right. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and right. The other, the other thing complicating this is a lot of times, if they do shut down, a lot of these big box companies will not sell their vacant properties without an anti-competitive deed restriction. So Walmart walks out, they leave, they stipulate that the deed of sale, you can't have any other big grocery right. store or large discount store, which would be the perfect tenant. Right. We're not yeah. going to let them move so if, in. if this Home Depot goes belly up, then maybe it would be Lowe's who would mm-hmm. want to move in right. and do hardware and the similar kind of stuff. They put that rider on their own rental agreement and now mm-hmm. – they're using that as an argument why the property is worthless for taxability. And it sounds crazy. It's down. It sounds specious. We think it is. And but we will. We, I do have to say this approach has been successful in some areas. I mean, there are dark store challenges in at least 20 states in Michigan alone. Uh, this has been applied widely, this approach, and local taxing units have lost about $100 million in revenue, Michael. It's putting a strain on cities, counties, and schools. I mean, as you know, local governments have to, to fund their schools, road repair, employee benefits, libraries, and, right. and other stuff. Right. And if you're not getting that property tax value, the fair property tax value for these large mega buildings, it really, really hurts you. And I know that in Minnesota, your right. colleague was just saying the other right. day that there's a new theory about the 14th Amendment. Yeah, and back, back to, yeah, keep keep your bookmark on the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment because that apparently is the newest wrinkle in the dark store theory 
uh, retailers in Minnesota have launched a new legal argument basically saying we're being unfairly singled out even relative to other retailers. The nature of big box retail is is leaving us vulnerable to unfair and unconstitutional taxation practices. And this should get struck down by the federal courts, not just your, you know, not just we can win on these local appeals processes, but we want to actually get in and say this whole thing's unconstitutional. So the 14th Amendment, Michael, is really <laughs> becoming, you know, if you don't like something, you can just say, you know what, it violates equal right. protection clause, like, and I'm, I'm going to interpret that the yeah, way I want to interpret I'm it. I'm ticked off, and I seem to be ticked off more than other people, so that is my equal protection argument. And, like, it's everywhere now. And, I mean, like, we're throwing everybody under the bus on the, I mean, this is including the state of Maryland. We, you know, we signed on, you know, challenging the salt limits on 14th Amendment grounds. Uh, the whole thing's tricky. Honestly, I'm, I'm really worried for Guam. Because they just can't afford to lose the foundation that they've built, so they can't. I mean, I, you know, I mean, if it ha- if it can happen in Minnesota and Michigan, it could happen in Guam. We may need to get down there to help them out. We will get. There's a lot of things we need to do in Guam, but but just to wrap this up, Michael, the dark store theory. This is this approach likely to be successful in a state like Maryland because we do have a really centralized approach when it comes to property assessment. I think two reasons why we're probably not a target state for this. Number one, like you said, the State Department of Assessments, like Maryland does this right. It's not Anne Arundel County or the city of Annapolis's job to go out and do the assessments themselves. It's a state agency that does that. Right. So if if a big box retailer wanted to try and contest their assessment in Maryland, they'd be taking on the attorney general's office who represents each state agency. Right. So it would be sophisticated, high-end people they'd have to go up against. Their idea is to try and find the weakest link in the chain and try and get a precedent-setting win in some small jurisdiction who doesn't have big money to beat their big-shot lawyers. You can't pick your venue in Maryland. The second thing we've got going for us is our statute statewide is actually really clear and strong about using the highest and best use for a property with some specific policy objections. We don't do it for farms. There's other specific things. Some carve outs. So, I mean, if they wanted to come in and get a bill passed saying, please be merciful unto our big box retailers, they can try and get that passed through the Maryland General Assembly. But I don't think it's likely they can win these cases in Maryland courts. So this is one where, you know, we are sympathetic and we have empathy for our colleagues in other jurisdictions, hopefully and probably not a centerpiece Maryland issue. Definitely, hopefully and probably (laughs) not a centerpiece Maryland issue. But we'll go ahead and leave that there. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't have to go and find them. They'll be sent directly to you. Also, we're on social media like our Twitter page, our Facebook page. You'll get all of our updates there. But for now, Michael and Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you next week.